0: Welcome to the brand new podcast, Sawmill Stories, coming to you from the Clinton Sawmill Museum in Clinton, Iowa. I'm your host, Charlene Vilma, editor of the Clinton Herald, and in this episode, The River Journey from Wisconsin's woods to Lyons Shoreline. I am joined by Matt Parbs, director of Clinton Sawmill Museum, Morgan Pinnell, assistant director of the Sawmill Museum, and Greg Obrin, co-founder of the Clinton History Club. In this episode, we'll take listeners back in time to the lumber camps of the 1800s before sending them on a journey that starts where the trees are cut and ends after logs formed into large rafts float down the Mississippi River on their four-day trip to Lyons, Iowa. Learn about the river's early role in the success of the Gateway Area's development, and hear some surprising historical tales that surfaced during this roundtable discussion. And now before we get started, Morgan will give us a history lesson about the setup of those camps, and give us details about what workers in the camp would do each day.
1: Lumber barons would buy stands of timber up in the northwoods, preferably by the river, but oftentimes what they bought wasn't always remembered. So when it came to ownership of the land, it was usually you're only in trouble if you got caught logging it. So once you had a nice stand of timber to work with, it was time to set up camp. Camps usually consisted of a cook shanty, bunk houses, a blacksmith, stables, and an office that also usually served as your store. So most important of these buildings, of course, was the cook shanty. The cook also had the most important job. Yeah, you were feeding 50 to 150 men and that is no small feat. These men were burning thousands of calories daily and needed three hefty meals to keep their energy up. So the cook had helpers called bull cooks whose job was to make sure everything stayed stocked and that they were staying in budget. That being said, pastries were a lot cheaper than meat. So pies and flapjacks were a big hit. The bunkhouses usually fit about 50 men, uh, occasionally two men to a bed if needed. Most of them didn't have windows but had skylights to open up if it got too hot or too smelly. As working and sweating all day and then eating beans for dinner multiplied by 50 would get a bit overbearing, I could imagine. So of course you would need a blacksmith there to fix any saws or axes or sharpen those as well. The blacksmith usually made up all the wagons which helped later on as the wagon runners had to be the same width and gauge apart so they could go the same path every time um, and that would eventually wear into the road which we'll mention some more later on the stables were to house the horses or ox that they were using to haul the wood so ox were usually used originally and then uh, very handy because they fended for themselves when spring hit they would tie bells around their necks so that when they came back up in the fall all they would have to do is listen for the bells to find them horses on the other hand were a lot of work they ate more and wouldn't be able to be left all on their own all summer but they were faster at getting the job done and in the end it was kind of whichever you preferred And then you had the foreman's office, which also housed your store. So if you needed extra socks or a new coat, that was where you would go as they usually just take it off their paycheck in the end of the season. So then when it came to logging, each man had a specific job. It was rare that they they strayed or got promoted. And if they did, it usually was in that same wheelhouse. So you had the cruiser. So they would go around the timber and estimate just how much money the boss would make for the lumber he was gonna be getting and then each job had its dangers some more than others if you were able to make the trees come down efficiently where you wanted them and were able to stay alive while doing it you were considered the top men in camp you had to make sure you were on the lookout always for falling trees and branches though because that was one of the main dangers up there was getting hit by anything falling off so you had the fitter who would cut notches into the side of the tree to get it ready for the feller The fellers would use a cross cut saw to cut the tree down and making sure that it was on the other side of the notch that the fitter cut. The swampers would take the branches off the logs and the bucker would cut Mm -hmm. those fallen trees into logs. So if you weren't cutting the trees down, you were probably stacking the logs or bringing them down the river. So you had the skitter, they would drag the logs from the forest to the loading yard with the horses. Then you had the skybirds who would arrange the logs from the heaviest to the lightest onto the sleighs. Then you had the sprinkler and icer who cleared the roads of sticks and manure and re-iced them every night. And hayman on the hill who would put hay, or, hay down or sand the trails to control the sleighs better. So going back to what I said with the blacksmith making all the sleighs, it was very important that the sleighs needed to travel the same path each time, which is why the runners were always made by the same person so the gauges were the same. It was um, easier to control them that way when they were going down the hill.
0: All right and today we're going to talk about the actual jobs that someone would do if they were working in the sawmill industry. So we'll take a little walk from Wisconsin and where people are actually cutting the wood, the river, getting on the the rafts in the river and how the, the wood made its way down here, and then also what would happen if you were actually working here in the sawmill industry. So let's start first with you, Matt. Give me a little bit of background about what it would look like up in Minnesota or Wisconsin to start this lumber journey.
2: Yeah, so a lot of times you're moving into Wisconsin, Minnesota. You might think you're going to be a farmer and it's kind of tough that first couple of years. So you uh, maybe at the town store and some guy comes in and says, hey, We'll take you out to the, the forest, and you can uh, do a winter of lumberjacking. And so, basically, you would spend six days a week from sunrise to sunset out in the forest. Uh, Morgan has, you know, detailed all the different jobs you, you can do. You know, there's a handful of different things, um, and you would basically just work <laughs> without a thermometer, uh, so you don't know how cold it is. Uh, the Warehouser and young love heavy snows, it's good to move the logs in with heavy snows, so it's like everything that I hate in life <laughs> is ideal uh, for being a lumberjack. Because you've
0: got to be hardy, right, I mean you've, you've got to be able to handle that kind of work. So are you a strapping young guy, are there older guys working this, well, are there the, women, there's not women doing this,
2: right? Well, you know, there are you know, like women soldiers that dress up as men, and I have not yet encountered but actually, in World War II, though, um, especially in Maine, but then over in, in, in Britain, I mean, women did do the lumberjacking in World War II. Oh. There's their, their statues over in England. We had the Lumberjills last year that tell that story about the Maine crew. Um, and yeah, I mean, and so you were out there. Uh, do you, did you have to be hardy? Um, well, for all these jobs, the answer is uh, no. Most people were like, this is crazy. Like, I'm not gonna do this for a career. Uh, You do have old lumberjacks, you know, there are pictures of 60, 70 year olds that still lived in the woods. It was a lifestyle that was created. And, you know, really, if you hunt, right, Morgan, you hunt. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're out in the woods in the winter, actually, you know, hunting, you don't really, it doesn't feel as cold. Until you're laid on that tree at 4 o'clock in the morning and (laughs) and whatnot. But when you're actually out getting to the deer stand, you forget that it's negative 10 degrees and all that. And and that's what you hear. I mean, the the wind's a little different in the middle of a forest. You might be in the bottom of a hill. Um, But, yeah, you are working really hard. Uh, And then when the snow's thawing, you have two options. You either go back to the farm and help planting, or you become a river driver, which is also crazy to me. It's like you're in the water pushing logs into sorting networks for log rafts in April and May, and March even, but April and May in like Wisconsin.
0: So okay, so it's seasonal you're part of this job when you're cutting the trees down that's being done is that being done year-round just the winter okay
3: They're more like more like uh, snow, like like what Matt said it's snow so that's when it's easy to drag the logs wherever from wherever you cut them down to wherever you need them to, to go to put them in the river so that you're um, you know November is probably earliest and then december the snows come january february and like matt said into march and then march you're on the river
2: mm-hmm. yeah and yes i mean you do it year round now and when you get to the west coast in the early 1900s you can do it year round and there were on occasions you know you were cutting but for us for us in clinton those log rafts needed to be coming down in main June, because as soon as that water got too low you're not moving a two hundred by six hundred, upwards of a thousand by fifteen hundred foot log raft uh, down a the river when it's too low.
0: So up there you have a camp.
2: Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Okay, so what's a camp look like? You've you've got people who are cutting, but you've also got people who are cooking. You've got different people with different jobs. What would that look like?
2: Yeah. So, I just told a couple days ago. It's always my intro to them as you ask them like what's the most important thing in a lumberjack camp. There is, really is only one important thing in a lumberjack camp and that's the cook. <laughs> of course. <laughs> right? They're like Michelin star chefs in the camp. Like, So you read some of these West Wisconsin Historical Society articles. I mean they're like rock stars. I mean it's like Chef Gordon Ramsay. and it's like and then like you get used to them and if you're in a bad camp and word gets out that Chef Ramsay has moved closer to you um, because you know know, we talk about you know the lunch is brought out to you in the woods so that obviously isn't gourmet food right but you look at the menu of their dinners and it is basically like going to an Amish smorgasbord it is yeah (laughs)
3: and it's social it's and, the thing and, they look forward it to it's yes you know you sit around a table and you discuss what happened during the day you discuss uh, what letter you got that day from oh, home yeah um and your your piles literally piles of potatoes and piles of vegetables and piles of meat it, it's like a yeah an almost I, I, i've never heard that before but that's exactly what you see if you look around the table and there's you know eight ten you know lumberjacks around a table, and it it reminds me of the um Seven Brides for the Seven Brothers movie, and there's one woman and seven men and they're all around the table digging in, and there's just piles of food <laughs> so who owns the camps
2: yep, so in in essence it's a very complicated network that we like to simplify uh, as it is the Mississippi River Logging Company, which is the monopoly created in 1870 in Chicago by Warehouser, Joyce, Young, and Lamb. And we're buying the pioneers. When we say we have our own logging crews, sometimes they are an essence like BWC which is, you know, you see BWC and like Midwest Construction, yeah, Midwest Concrete. Or some other big...
3: They're all, they're all contractors. Yeah. You know, Jurgensen, Ronald Jurgensen yep. Company and, and uh, Clinton Engineering, they're all contracting companies.
2: But at the end of the day, right, they're in existence because, for this case this story, you know, the city gives BWC contracts to do work, and it is public work
3: it's public work yeah. yeah
2: so there I mean you we own the Pinery or somebody else owns the Pinery but there's someone that owns the trees the timber rights and or the land and we do have some of our own crews but a lot of times like in the record books it would say um, BWC and right but Matt Brook actually owns BWC because <laughs> it's warehouse of Joyce Young and Lamb but Right, we don't say that, right? It's like, oh, well, we paid such and such logging crew to do the work, and we paid the Mississippi River Logging Company so much money for the timber rights, and we paid the Mississippi River Logging Company so much money to ship the logs.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And by the time the logs got here and milled, our workers say, hey, we deserve the sawmill workers a, a pay raise, right? And, and then Young says, ah, but it cost twenty dollars per thousand board foot to do the logs, I mean, they only sell it for 18, we took a $2 loss, which is true on the books, right? But, and that's how the railroads are built too, and what we'll, we'll reference as well, is that, you know, on the books, there are these separate companies. But at the end of the day, the capital is very, very, very small. And there's just some select people. So there are some really huge operations. So my favorite is Alexander McMillan, they're gonna marry the Cargill family and transform the Cargill family into what Cargill is today. But they're a large large logging enterprise in Minnesota, large enough that we did contract with them. And then you start looking at all these uh, records at University of Iowa and it's like, my gosh, it's almost like a sole proprietor dealing with, um, or sorry, like like we're the sole, like our money gets sent to him and then he sends us the logs and like does he have a business outside of us type thing right so you you do have that enough scale of our thing is that yeah you, you just want somebody else to deal with it uh, so it's very complicated when you ask like, well, who is it because you know when you look at the names the names are local minnesota and wisconsin even sometimes timber owners and we say the same thing with the sawmills in wisconsin and minnesota that a lot of times they're going to keep a generic name, like Deer River. Well, Joyce Lamb and Warehouse are own three-fourths of Deer River, but Joe Smith has got the plaque at Wisconsin Historical Society. So if you go to Wisconsin, they think that's Joe Smith's sawmill, and you can let them think that. But once again, the capital that's driving his sawmill is this capital that is headquartered in, in Clinton.
0: It's the same hands with different names on them. Yeah. Okay. We
2: call it the alphabet soup. Oh, so they sure. So the Mississippi River Logging Company is going to call themselves the Chippewa Boom Company, the Chippewa Logging Company. There's a thousand different names um, that they're going to have that basically does slightly different things to your question. They're they're dealing with this geographical point, and they want a different name because they're obviously right. They're trying to mm-hmm. hide that <laughs> at the end of the day, it's a monopoly. Mm-hmm. And there's you know. <laughs> That's
3: exactly it. It's a monopoly that is so well disguised into, you know, probably literally hundreds of companies by the time you get, you know, the Matt Parb uh, sawmill guys and the Greg Obern lumberjacks and the Morgan Pinnell cooks and, you know, and all of a sudden <laughs> you can't find, you can't find a trail anywhere because it's all, it's all a big shell game it really is the logs are cut or timbers
0: cut and so they're getting it to the river sleds
2: in essence yeah
0: okay so they're they're pulling it down there and then, then what's happening to it you've got crews doing what to it there when they get it to the river
1: uh, they put them into the rafts and they had cribs right cribs, cribs right. um that they would uh put the logs in eventually to kind of keep better control of them and when you got to certain parts of the river you'd have to break those apart in order to get through if the water was too low or with rapids or anything like that if you went south of Clinton you'd have the rapids going to Davenport is there a lot of
0: traffic I mean I've seen pictures of the rafts and they're huge how are they navigating all that oh you've got pilots yeah and they're all in touch with each other right how
3: Actually, uh, no, no. that you know like the pilots I know as you know Bill Pilot, I know this particular section of the river and Joe knows the next section of the river and Pete knows the next section of the river and you know the the, you know the rats are being shoved down but I'm only doing this section of the river I get off Joe gets on I get a horse and go back up to start again for the next logs coming down.
0: So it's a relay. You're handing off
3: to somebody. Yeah, very, yeah.
0: Because obviously, yeah, you know certain layouts of the river and then you've got the rapids, which would
3: take its own skill to get down here. It's the same thing that was happening with all all the river boats during the time. You would only know your section of the river. You know where the wing dams are. You know where the low spots are. You know where the high water spots are. You know that you get on the boat. You go your part of the river. Then you get off the boat. And if you're lucky, there's a boat going south. And then you're lucky there's a boat going north. And then you're lucky again and the boat's going south. So you're just on and off and on and off and on and off and on and off in your section of the river.
2: So you have like, you know, our diary... That guy just does Winona to Clinton. There are pilots that do just Lansing to like Dubuque. Mm-hmm. And you would not hire Lansing to Dubuque guy to do the Winona to Clinton uh, run. There is uh, steamboat operators that just go, as Greg says, from Clinton to Davenport, Clinton to LeClaire, LeClaire to Davenport. Um, there are steamboat operators that are shady, that uh, try to
0: Act- Steal the still wood? Well, no, no. What they oh, okay. try to do
2: is what Greg is getting at is, so I'm, I'm blanking on his name, but it's really awesome. He buys a, a famous boat from Clinton, and he tries to repurpose it as basically a cargo boat. And He acts as if he's actually able to deliver things on time as if he knows the river and he has multiple accidents and can never go on time. Um, because his actual knowledge of the river is not that great, and he gets, he gets in a knife fight, um, stabs and kills a guy, and goes out west and all that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> 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 because literally, he parks. In, this is true. He parks in the wrong wharf in Davenport, and it's owned by Diamond Joe in Davenport. Yes, I think I told Morgan this story. Yep, I forgot and so about the guys that. like yo this is my wharf and he's like what are you talking about you know like it's the river it's, it's my wharf now it's public yeah. access or whatever <laughs> yeah and diamond joe's like no one's so the guy gets angry and stabs the diamond joe who really that was diamond joe's wharf and so mm-hmm. he has to flee town I mean, that's an extreme example of incompetency <laughs> but, yeah. but but you're getting as like i'm saying is i mean it is it seems so easy <laughs> right We can all get on our pontoon boat and go up and down the river, and it's easy. (laughs) But when you're actually having to compete with what actually happened on the river, starting in the 1870s, you have channel projects. The lock and dams come in the 1930s with the nine-foot channel. But it starts in the 1870s as a four and a half foot channel. Then it goes to a six foot channel. So
0: it's a river, it's run wild, basically. You don't have all these navigational points. Uh,
2: Do you? Well, very quickly, the Army Corps of Engineers are going to tackle that. Because, yes, the issue is it's not a highway like it is with Mm -hmm. the lock and dams. And so they, in essence, create a river um, that allows for... Really, what happens is log rafts choke out all other traffic, and in 1907 sure. there's a railcar shortage, and now that the grain and all that can't be moved on the river, log rafting is last one's going to be 1915 anyways. Our last sawmill closes 1907 in Clinton. It, it coincides anyways with the decline, but the river had basically been destroyed by a one industry-based need. Mm-hmm. And then when the rail course started s- happens, uh, farmers and other businesses say, hey, you know, we need to get more boats. So like there used to be pleasure boats all the time. They disappear. After 1907, um, you see these excursion boats that we all, uh, sometimes, you know, like the Sydney and the Quincy and these different boats, these famous pictures of Clinton, a boat on the side. Well, this comes in after basically the law graphs. Um, a, N, and B, they start re-engineering the river. The idea of the lock and dams start early on. And then, of course, it's going to take, you know, 20, 30 years to actually come into fruition. Um, but there's this, this, this knowledge that, my gosh, like, yeah, we allowed law graphs to choke out pretty much everything else um, mm-hmm. and so there's you know there's these the, the, the river traffic itself was dipping um, so it's yeah it's it's a constant uh, you know the rail has these things the river so every road we debate this with I-80 and 4 uh, highway 30 all the time mm-hmm. these big transit basin studies and you know I'm sitting in this room I'm gonna call out the government and it's like, <laughs> man, this of, 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 of traffic and it's like going to Dubuque and Davenport and ADM and Dell are sitting in our room saying, well, where's Clinton's semi-traffic? Oh, it doesn't exist. I'm mm-hmm. paraphrasing. I'm sure the government mm-hmm. says we didn't say that. ADM guy goes, you're telling me Clinton doesn't get semi-traffic at ADM? Mm-hmm. Like, we haven't backed up. Mm-hmm.
3: <laughs> there's there's actually 250 semis going in and out of Hartsmill Road right now mm-hmm. daily. It should be because of how how things are, I don't want to say progressing, but progressing and building for those companies that are you know, on manufacturing drive. So you the know,
0: problems of yesteryear are still the problems of today. It's just a different way of solving it's them. It's
3: just a different way of solving. And the, the other thing too, when, when we're talking about the river versus road versus rail, there are definite niches now for what can be shipped and why it's going to be shipped on the river or why it's going to be shipped on the rail or why it's going to be shipped on road. You know, just because of what the product is and where it needs to go to make it in many cases to a global market. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what a lot of what is um, uh, transforming what what you know we like to recall or refer to as a transportation system. Transportation system isn't just road isn't just rail isn't just river it's the three of them together and you know in the bigger picture we can add you know air into that too you know you know when we're talking about things that are happening locally you know let's go talk to marlena out at the uh, airport on what is coming in besides passengers now going to companies around and how you know air has when that you know was um, when the uh, airport was actually constructed because of the um, Schick Army Hospital being built here that all changed how people traveled by road that traveled by rail because remember that was in times where rail was you know more used than actually roads were you know you, you traveled by train we talked about trains or we'll talk about trains you know, when we're talking about how the sawmill industry, the lumber industry, yeah. and, and trains right. affected each other. It's the same thing. The
0: idea trains. of, like, going to a depot and just, like, getting on a train to go to, I don't know, Chicago, wherever. Go to Chicago, go to Davenport. I don't even know if that, did that happen in my lifetime? I don't know. I've heard I've yeah. read stories about yeah. it.
2: Yeah, we have a picture of Amtrak out there at the Chicago Northwestern things. Depot, yeah. Yeah. But like Greg says, I mean, one of the competitive advantages is until the Shea locomotives and lots of different locomotive things, especially in the early 1900s, allow for a little bit different type of shipping, you save millions of dollars a year on not having to ship logs on train. Um, In fact, right now, Biden has passed a a thing that everybody's bringing back Teddy Roosevelt uh, for basically executive actions on monopolies. And you, it's funny to read about, you know, in that time, the biggest thing, right, is the corruption in the rail rates, mm. and which is a whole big story for Clinton and Chicago and the rail. They all battle each other, and one month, Clinton gets the better rates, and then, who knows, Chicago sends a better uh, fruit package. And so, <laughs> you know, they, this month, then the Chicago gets it, so Warehouser and Young go uh, well, then Curtis becomes right, like a politician and whatnot. So you know you have these back and forths, and then obviously in 1900, early 1900s, hey, Roosevelt says, hey, you know this—it really is true. It is crippling. If you wanted to get into this business, there was no way you could ever defeat Chicago wholesalers, Mississippi River Logging Company, and shipping lumber. Some people did, and there were these occasions. Took a lot of effort, but at the end of the day you know, shipping logs down on river, you didn't have to worry about the rates that were being set by a real company on the weight Mm -hmm. of a log. Plus, you can then proposition the government, lobby the government to do these improvements on the river that pretty much make it easier to send your logs down. The railroad tells you to take a hike.
3: (laughs) And, and, And then think about just fuel costs. Fuel cost going downriver is pittance compared to fuel cross of putting a log on a train.
0: Can we talk that's, about travel time? Like how long does it take for the logs? Do you well, okay, so we've got weather, it, right, that's it, involved it, in this. It's weather,
3: mm-hmm. it's height of the river.
0: It's in it's <laughs> competence of the person who's who's running the show. Yeah.
2: So like you know, Greg said, downriver it would take you four days or so usually Monday through Thursday, so leave in our diary, right? You leave a Monday, you arrive on Clinton on Thursday, you mm-hmm. do a little recoup, and then it actually only takes you a couple of days back to go up river. To,
3: to get the next load.
2: Yeah, because you're gonna, right?
0: Yeah, it's constant.
2: Because you're not, like, you're not having to pool anything, right? You're pushing the logs down the river. It's not, we call it a tow boat, but it's actually a push boat. Mm-hmm. And so, right, and like Rick says, you don't, you're, you're not, you can on occasion and there are a little bit of a race here and there as they try to get to an area so they could be first in line come daybreak um, but other than that you know, you're, in essence you're more steering the raft.
3: Well and then in, f- in front of the raft mm-hmm. of logs there are boats it's just not the push boat you've got boats on either side so as you're maneuvering through the, the river and it's winding and turning there's a boat pushing you away from the shore on this side or a boat on that side pushing you away from that shore so that the the raft is not getting hung up in the front while the boat behind is pushing you know just a constant push 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 wow. and then these boats push and then what happens when you know we get hung up You know, on a on a on a on a sandbar or something, that's when hey I got to get off the log raft so I can get a you know some kind of lever in there to lever off the log. Dangers. This is okay. This is the mom and me showing through. (laughs) Dangers. Your job.
0: (laughs) You're always dealing with the threat of having to get off of that and dislodging it from what it's hooked up on. Sure. You're dealing with currents. You're dealing with weather. Oh, and then
3: and then well. I just uh, got off my shift and now I need to uh, get up so I can go get the log at the front of the log raft. Mm. So I have to walk on the, every log down and the logs are moving up and down through the water and in and mm. out and oh, um, by the way, if I misstep, I'm in the drink and there's two logs above my head, I'm I'm dead. Because mm. there's just no way that I can you know get up again unless i swim to the side hopefully to get out get out you know if the current lets you if the current lets you yeah
0: well this has been a great discussion today N- next week what we're going to do is pick up on what happens when the the lumber makes its way when it gets to clinton what's it going to look like as far as our workforce, and also the layout of the sawmills alongside of our riverfront. There are so many sawmills, you hear the names, but then there's a lot more names we don't know about. Um, and with this, there is a great piece of paper I have in my hand right now that was handed to me by, by Morgan, and it shows all the different sites, Like, and, and there's a map that you can actually take a look at. And Matt, where did you say that this could be accessed at for yep. people to look at?
2: So it's pocketsites.com, uh, the CVB has some tour sites, and we've got the lumber sites, and then we also have all the historic properties that we deemed historic properties in the 70s. So we basically in the 70s put together a compilation of what we had hoped would go on the registry. And so it's, it's cool, but it, it, you can have it on your phone, it's a GPS guided thing, or there's a paper copy. Uh, and then what we'll discover with this, and why we made this right, is like virtually none of this is standing. Right? So you're in essence gonna be going to an empty field. Uh, oh, right exactly be talking about that that's why we made it people would ask us and we got tired of trying to tell mm-hmm. them like trust us like there's nothing to go see uh, <laughs> or if there is to see as we'll get into it's right. completely different right like a little tease like what was that the former or what was now is the point let's rephrase this there's now the marine or the pool right what yeah. was on top of the pool
0: Oh, we'll come back and you can tell us that next week. <laughs> we, we, I've got some trivia questions we'll fold into this, too, as we go along. So, OK, well, thanks for joining us. And today, of course, we had Matt Parbs, who just has all of this at the edge of his brain. I don't know how he does it. We appreciate that so much. Greg O'Brien from the Clinton History Club and Morgan Pinnell, assistant director. And I'm Charlene Bielema, and we'll see you next week. second Sawmill Stories podcast, The River Journey from Wisconsin's woods to Lyons shoreline. Special thanks to Matt Parbs, director of the Clinton Sawmill Museum, Morgan Pinnell, assistant director of the Sawmill Museum, whose research formed the basis for today's podcast, and Greg O'Brien, co-founder of the Clinton History Club. If you'd like to give us some feedback about today's podcast, or if you have a topic you'd like us to talk about, drop an email to news at clintonherald.com. I'm Charlene Bielema, editor of the Clinton Herald be sure to join us next week as we bring you more
2: sawmill stories.